Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. Welcome to Football is Family, a podcast dedicated to the fan and fan experience. My name is Jeremy McFarland, and I want to look at the positive behind what makes football so enjoyable to watch and follow. I want to know why you are a fan of your team, of a player, or an era of football. Whether the pros, college, or high school, I want to hear and share your stories and your love for the game. If you want to be part of this podcast, please message me on Twitter at Jeremy underscore McFarlane, or on Facebook at the Footballist Family Facebook page. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. I'd like to welcome everybody back to the Footballist Family Podcast. And I have a special guest today. Would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Jim Johnson. I write for uh, BeltwayFootballHistory.com. I cover the Baltimore Colts, Baltimore Ravens, and the old Washington Redskins. I see. And we're going to, I guess we're going to call them the Redskins of the football team. We'll, we'll call them either one of them today. Uh, but what I'd like to do with this particular interview is talk about why you like the Ravens or the Colts or the Redskins. Tell, tell me about some of your football memories. Sure. Uh, and they go back further than I really care to admit at this point. But, uh, you know, I was, uh, I'm a bit late stage baby boomer. So uh, I grew up uh, toward the end of when baseball was still the national pastime. And, you know, the first thing uh, you did with, with a little boy is you waited for your dad to take you to your first major league baseball game. Now, I lived right outside of Washington, D.C., so we kind of had a quasi-major league team, the Senators, back then, which are currently the Texas Rangers. Um, but then at the that same time in the late 60s, as I was just coming aware of sports, um, the Redskins were establishing themselves as not a good team yet, but a team that was worth watching, a team that was selling out every Sunday. I think the sellout streak they had, it started in 65, 66, I believe, which coincided with the arrival of Sonny Jurgensen and Sam Huck. Now, more people were there to see Sonny because he put the points up on the board. Huff was still a very good player, but didn't have a lot around him, so the defense was kind of shaky. But that made it fun uh, because Sonny had to put up 30 points a game in order to be competitive and, you know, with no running game. But he had three of the greatest, maybe one of the greatest receiving cores, and I think it's a very underrated receiving core uh, as time has gone by. Uh, two Hall of Famers, Charlie Taylor and Bobby Mitchell, and then Jerry Smith, who was could have been a great tight end if uh, George Allen had ever liked to throw the ball to the tight end. You know, he did what the coach asked him to do, and later in his career, Jerry Smith became a blocker. But they were in 67, I think it was, they were numbers one, two, and four in the league in receiving, something that has never happened before or since. And uh, Sonny at that point held the record for most attempts, most completions, and most yards. 
because again, they couldn't run the ball and they had a bad defense. So, you know, the game plan was throw and hope you can outscore the team. So it was a lot of fun to watch and they won some, lost some, uh, but it, it was something to get excited about. And uh, I grew up with, you know, the local team. So I was near Washington. So by law, I was a Senators and a Redskins fan. But then even when I moved further away, kind of bordering on what was then Baltimore Colt territory, you know, I, I still had the love for the Redskins because, uh, you know, we got teased with that one year of Lombardi in 69, which was amazing. I was too young to fully appreciate just how amazing it was to have him as coach. But then when George Allen came in and brought those great veteran players in, the Over the Hill gang, and got them into the playoffs, got them to the Super Bowl, things that hadn't happened in Washington uh, since the 40s, uh, it was very, very exciting to watch. And I love those teams. They, they had very accessible, very, from my perspective, easy to root for players. And when that morphed over after three years of Jack Pardee into Joe Gibbs, it was more of the same. Exciting football, players that were easy to root for, well-coached teams. Uh, the excitement at the games was still very high. You know, and that lasted until the early 90s. So uh, it was really, I think, uh, you know, unless you go back to Sammy Ball, back in the you know, 30s and 40s, it was the golden era of Redskin football, especially in the 71 through 92, when they were in the playoffs much more often than not. Uh, and they won three championships and got to two other Super Bowls. It was uh, just a lot of fun being a fan at that time. Let me ask you a question, because I remember growing up in the 80s, um, I watched, when I started paying attention to football, was the Super Bowl where, and I picked the Broncos. And the Broncos lost to the Redskins 42 to 10. It was a bad Super Bowl for the Broncos. Now, it was a great Super Bowl for your Redskins. Um, and I believe Joe Gibbs was the coach at that point. Wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Doug Williams did an amazing job that game. An amazing job. But then later on, the Redskins went and played the Bills, and Mark Rippon was the quarterback. Was it was it Joe Gibbs? Was he the glue that brought that team together, or was it something else? Because it seemed like they could win regardless of who was uh, in the quarterback position. Well, it's really two, and, and you know, the first Super Bowl they won with Joe Theismann quarterback. Right, he right, is, yes. He's the only coach to win three Super Bowls with three different quarterbacks. It's hard to conceive of that. As many uh, Super Bowls as Bill Belichick has won, he had one quarterback. Um, so yes, uh, I think Gibbs was definitely the glue because he would put together, uh, working with the, the front office, he would put together the best team he could, but then he would figure out what they did well. You know, For example, Mark Rippon was a much better long passer, and they had uh, Gary Clark and Ricky Sanders, who were two terrific uh, deep receivers. So in 91, which I, I think was the best team they ever had in 91, they went 14 and two. They, they went deep and deep and deep and deep and, and were just deadly effective. No one could stop them. Um, whereas the team in uh, 82 that won the first Super Bowl was a lot of John Riggins. They had the Hogs, they had Riggins. Receivers other than Art Monk were okay, but they were better with the ball control and the defense. And then 87 was kind of an in-between. Uh, 
They, they got to the Super Bowl in 87 by winning a totally defensive-oriented NFC Championship game, and nobody saw that explosion of five touchdowns in the second quarter coming, and not from Doug Williams, who had been horrendously bad the week or the two weeks before in the NFC Championship game. Nobody saw that coming. So they caught lightning in a bottle for 15 minutes. But, uh, you know, the, the three championship teams Joe Gibbs had were so different because he was able to figure out what they did best. And he had a great defensive coordinator in Richie Pettibone for all three of those teams. He was one of the great defensive coordinators of all time. Uh, and he let him go and he worked the offense. Uh, but just getting the best out of that team, which doesn't have a lot of Hall of Fame representation. They have some, but not a, not a ton for three championship teams compared to some of the other repeat champions. Um, so, yeah, he's, I, he's definitely one of the all-time coaches, and he was a coach that didn't stick with his system. You know, some, some coaches are, okay, boys, this is my system. We're going to do it my way, but the players don't necessarily fit. He was flexible and looked at what he had and, and made the best with what he had and, and did really well with it, obviously. That uh, the 91 Super Bowl, if I remember correctly, it, it wasn't even a contest. It it wasn't as bad as the one against the Broncos, but I just think that the Redskins that year, I remember watching them. They dominated everybody. Yep. It was it was impressive. And, and, and that's the thing that you look back on teams like that and you think uh, you didn't appreciate it at the time, but you do now. Yeah, I, I, and I think, uh, you know, sometimes that team still gets lost in the shuffle a little bit. But, uh, you know, the, the one game they lost that um, really hurt is they lost a the game to the Cowboys. And But remember, that Cowboys team was one year away from winning three out of four Super Bowls. You know, they weren't quite there yet, but they were, you know, the Redskins were talking perfect season. And they were into November undefeated. I think they were 9-0. and And then they lost the last game of the season because they played substitutes the second half and still lost on a last-second field goal up in Philadelphia. So, yeah, that was a, a dominant team that had, uh, uh, I, I think, an underrated defense. But, uh, boy, that offense, they just pulverized people. They were terrific. And, again, that, that was never a style that uh, Gibbs had really used with the Redskins, but he had the players to make it work, and he built it for a couple of years. Uh, you know, Rippon didn't come out of the shoot throwing bombs, but that was his third year as a starter, and that third year, boy, it all clicked. Now, you said that you grew up in the Washington area, but you went and you moved to the Baltimore area. Is that right? Kind of quasi. There's that kind of no man's land in, in central Maryland between Washington and Baltimore, and I spent a lot of, uh, a lot of years there. So, uh, it's morphed more toward Washington, but back then it was still definitely uh, considered Baltimore area. Okay, so maybe you can help me out with this. Uh, if you if you look at what I got right here, I'm in mourning right now. Yeah, I'm in mourning. That was absolutely the worst I've seen the Titans play in a very long time. Um, we benefited here in Nashville area from a team leaving and coming here. And I hate that because I would love to have an expansion that we wouldn't take from somebody. Um, I heard your interview with Arnie. Uh, Can you tell me what the feeling was in 83, 84 with with the Baltimore Colts moving? Oh, it was horrible. Um, 
Now, now, let, let me let me let me set the scene. I hate to interrupt you. Let me set the scene. Oh. Um, when you talk about the cults, uh, there, my 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 brother-in-law is a huge Georgia Bulldogs fan. It's life for him because it seems like it's you know within reason. Obviously, you know it's just a game, but it's life for him. What I understand, and, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, is if my Titans. That's not the same as loving a college team. For the Baltimore Colts, it was as if they were a college team that that whole city revolved around. Do you, do you see something similar to that? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I've, I've seen that mentioned a lot of times, especially, and, and it's interesting because the, the Colts really went through the two phases. They went through the phase from the uh, the birth of the team in 53 until uh, 1972, when uh, it was a cycle of a lot of the team grew old together. And, you know, sometimes that happens and uh, they really fall off the ledge very quickly. Because in 1971, the Colts had lost the AFC championship game. So, you know, had a good year. And in 72, they lost four of their first five. And the team had been traded. Uh, Carol Rosenblum had been the owner from day one until that point. Uh, he was already frustrated not getting a new stadium. And this was already 1972. And uh, he was able to get Robert Irsay to buy the Los Angeles Rams and trade him straight up for him, with, for, with him, uh, for the Colts. Uh, so uh, Rosenblum didn't have to pay capital gains tax, basically a tax dodge, a very legal tax dodge. So uh, Irsay comes in and he hires uh, Joe, uh, Joe Thomas, who had been a personnel guy for the Dolphins. Um, and he had helped kind of broker the arrangement. He helped connect Rosenblum and Irsay. And then um, after the fifth game, uh, he benches, he orders Johnny Unitas to be benched after he fires the coach, Don McCafferty, who'd won the Super Bowl two years ago, and sits down most of the veteran players. And the town just erupted with anger. Now, the Colts were one and four, so they were pretty well toast at that point. But just the relatively, well, I'd have to say very callous way that that was done uh, to the legend, the man. I, I wrote a column uh, in, for uh, Baltimore Sports and Life back in uh, uh, September uh, saying that I think Johnny Unitas was the most important athlete in Baltimore history because he was the guy that brought that first championship. He was the guy that put Baltimore and to some extent the NFL on the map with the 58 championship. And no, he wasn't what he had been because he was in his late thirties at that point. But, uh, you know, just the, the callous, cold, impersonal way that that was handled with him and a lot of the other veterans uh, got a lot of the fans upset and they stopped coming to the game. So that even when a couple of years later, the Burt Jones team started winning and they won the East Division three straight years in 75 through 77, there were still a lot of empty seats. And this was a city that had sold out games for year after year after year. So there was a break there that was never completely healed because Baltimore loved, and, and your analogy with the college team is it's a very good analogy. That was their college team, those old Colts. The newer Colts, yeah, the city liked them and they rooted for them. And in 77, they came very, very close to being a championship game, championship team. But it was never the same. 
And then when Burt Jones got hurt in 78 and the team went in the toilet and never had a winning record again. Um, you know, by 1983, the last home game, nobody knew it was the last home game, only had 20,000 people, even though the team was competitive that year. They were seven, uh, seven and nine, if I remember correctly. So Irsay and, and Joe Thomas had managed to break that bond and they were able to put a Band-Aid on it for a while. But by the time 83 came, it was it was largely gone. And uh, I don't think there was anything, even if they had, had come up with a new stadium, I don't think there was anything they could have done as long as Robert Irsay owned that team that would have healed that wound. So and so that's where maybe you lose the the comparison to the college team. But you know, from the from the mid 50s through the early 70s, and again, it was the era too, because these guys worked, you know, the off-season jobs, a lot of them. They worked side by side with the fans. They lived in the fans' neighborhoods. Some of them had the row houses in Baltimore. And they, they, were, they were your neighbors. You saw them at the grocery store. They, they were just so ingrained in the community, they were part of the community. They were they, the heart in some ways of that community. And then that heart just all of a sudden got ripped out unceremoniously and uh, never never got repaired. So uh, it was a matter of time, uh, as long as Irsay kept the team, that he was going to have to get out of Baltimore uh, because he just wasn't going to be able to repair the damage that, that he had allowed and in some cases directly inflicted himself. This is this this fascinates me because I can see people <clears throat> I follow people on Twitter who are in Houston who are Titans fans because they follow the team. They're not necessarily Texans fans, they're Titans fans. Do you still find people who are Colts fans in Indianapolis there in Baltimore? Not many. Not many, really. No. And the players, the old players set the tone for that. Uh, players like John Unitas, uh, players like Tom Maddy recently passed away, right. uh, said, hey, we have nothing to do with Indianapolis. You know, they've never been a part of that franchise. Uh, hardly, hardly any of them anymore. They're still a fixture in Baltimore. A lot of the, the old Colts that are still alive are still living in Baltimore and still part of the community. Um, so that, you know, that was their home and they didn't change affiliations, probably more so than, than any other team I remember. And, and yeah, it's, in fact, um, you know, I brought up the Washington Senators a little while ago. Well, an old boss of mine back in the early 2000s had a Texas Rangers cap in his uh, office. And I, was, I said, oh, is that a Texas Rangers cap? He said, yeah, you know, there used to be a team called the Washington State. Yeah, I know that's where I went my first game. So there were actually still a few in Washington rooting for the Rangers, which you know, surprised me. But yeah, the, the bitterness and, and the way it was done, sneaking out, literally sneaking out in the middle of the night. It, it was in the middle of the night. Now, did I hear it correctly that they that the governor almost called the state law into it, the troopers? Well, uh, he had thought about that. But what what was what precipitated that is the uh, House of Delegates in Maryland the day before that had passed a bill where they were going to seize the team by imminent domain. Okay. Okay. You know, same way that uh, they'll they'll take land that they're going to use for you know build a road through or something like that. Now it's very questionable if that would have held up in court, but it scared hearsay enough that he basically took it on the land 
and had everybody come together and pack it up. And it's no coincidence that Mayflower trucks, and you know, you still can't go very long if you're reading anything about Baltimore football and not see a Mayflower truck picture in the snow that night. Because uh, the mayor of Indianapolis contacted the owner or the CEO of Mayflower Transit, which was based in Indianapolis. So that's why you got the Mayflower trucks coming out there and doing that. They've never really done a whole lot of business in the state of Maryland since. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. Yeah. <laughs> but that wasn't a big area for them. So I guess they were willing to sacrifice it. Um, but yeah, that's that was why they they did that. Is is Irsay was running scared that he he might get tied up in court and not be able to move because he was about ready to go anyway. Uh, so he didn't want anything to hold him back, and that's why they slipped off in the middle of the night. And it was really there was some talk, but it was really too late to do much of anything once they got across state lines, which didn't take them all that long. There wasn't much they could do. Now, when you uh, talk about the Baltimore Colts, the old school Colts who are still living in Baltimore. They have a lot more to do with the Ravens than you would think they would. Absolutely. Uh, and that was a really critical thing. And that's great. For, that's well, great. It, it is. And, you know, there was a lot of mixed feelings in Baltimore when the Browns moved there. You know, just as, as you expressed your mixed feelings about the Titans, you know, uh, especially having had it happen to them. They and and respecting Cleveland as a terrific football town, it was really hard for some of the fans to fully embrace the Browns coming in. But one of the smartest things that Art Modell, the Browns owner, did was he approached a lot of the old Colts. He approached Unitas. He approached Lenny Moore. He approached Matt. All those guys, and they showed up at the first game. Unitas walks across the field, hands the game ball to the referee. The Ravens coach, Ted Barchabroda, runs and hugs him. And they had 40 old Colts lined up. They had Colts jackets on. Then they took them off and they put Ravens jackets on. They got all the ceremony just absolutely perfect. And that made a big impression because that gave the old Colts fans essentially permission to then becomes become Ravens fans and not feel like they were abandoning the old Colts. And they were still, uh, Maddie was the uh, radio color analyst for 10 years. Uh, you know, I think uh, Lenny Moore is doing some work uh, in the community with the front office. Uh, there are others that have been connected. So uh, that was a, a vital thing for that franchise to do coming in. And they really hit all the right notes with it. And, oh, and they, that, they that must the old, have been. That one must have been amazing to see. It was. It really was. And uh, when they opened the new stadium, they put a, a ring of honor. And in uh, the year after Unitas passed away, uh, they put the Hall of Fame Colts in the Ravens. They called the Baltimore Ring of Honor. And they had a ceremony for that, and all of the living members uh, showed up for that. And there's a huge, wonderful statue of Unitas standing out in front of M&T Bank Stadium. So they they are keeping that connection alive because there are still still old Colts fans. They're shelling out the money to get the Ravens tickets. Now, when you go in Baltimore, when you're walking around, do you still see Colts merchandise, walk, people walking around wearing Colts merchandise? Uh, limited. And usually they'll be the old jerseys. Uh, you know, I have a United jersey myself. 
Um, and you'll oh, see. Please a lot tell of, me. Please tell me it's dark blue. Absolutely. Thank you. That's why I had to hear that. I needed to hear that. And, and part of it is because I'm a slob on a white jersey. Because, you know, he wore the white jersey when he won the 58 championship, but still. Yes, did. Um, but, yeah, you, you, you'll see a little bit of it, but most of it now is, is uh, pretty consistently the, the Ravens. Yeah, I'm looking at the uh, the book The Glory Game by Frank Gifford, which is a, a fantastic book. And there's that white. There's the old school white jersey. Yep, and, and you see Alan Amici falling into the end zone in the white jersey, that famous picture. The, I, I like the history. I don't have the connection with the Titans because obviously they didn't come until 99, really. I went. I was at Vanderbilt Stadium and watched them play as the Oilers. Um, but with, with a connection like you're saying that you have with the Redskins or the Colts, See, this is what I like about fandom is that you can go back and say, this is the moment where I started following this team. Mm -hmm. Do you have a moment like that? I do. I absolutely do. Um, it was 1997. It was the second year the Ravens were in town. And uh, I had gotten tickets for the Ravens playing the Redskins at their new stadium, uh, which was Jack Kent Cook Stadium at the time. Right, yes. And I was kind of torn. Uh, I've been... You know, you, you could root for both teams. Um, not many people did. In the Washington-Baltimore area, you generally pick one. Uh, you know, there is no such thing as the Washington-Baltimore area as far as sports goes. It's either Washington or Baltimore. You know, there's not a whole lot of mixing there. Uh, so I was kind of unique that I, you know, my, my secondary team had been the Colts, my primary team in the Redskins. But I noticed as that game went on, I was naturally rooting for the Ravens to win. And I said, okay, that's the minute I, that, you know, when you see both of them on the field and you were rooting for one of them, then I went ahead and said fully, okay, the Ravens are my team because that was also around the time the franchise was rebuilding. And unfortunately, uh, Dan Snyder fought the team. And uh, yeah, less said about that, the better. Yeah, we don't, we don't talk about that. Um, do you have... What is your most prized possession that you own from, you know, just merchandise, memorabilia? I have a book uh, that uh, Johnny and I just wrote, Pro Quarterback, My Own Story, in the other room there, that uh, he personally autographed for me. And that is when, when we recently moved, I made darn sure I knew where that book was. Because I actually met the man. Uh, can't say he was very chatty, but you know, I just generally wasn't chatty. But uh, I have his original autograph that I received from him. Didn't have to pay for it back then. This is 1971, probably. Um, that is a cherished possession. Now, what I was told about John Unitas is he didn't say much. So you're right. now well, nothing personal. Just he didn't chat. He, he just didn't say much. What did he say at the end of uh, before every game? Talk is cheap. Let's play. Something like that. And that's what he uh, did. When I watched Johnny Unitas when he was uh, older, um, obviously football took a beating on him. Was he was he kind of in 1971? Did it look like he was taking a beating on him then? Yeah, in fact, he had missed part of the season because he had torn his Achilles playing paddle ball in the off season. So uh, he played, I think, probably about the last eight or nine games. But yeah, I mean, you could tell his, when he hurt his arm in '68, there was nerve damage. And it never really came back. Uh, so, you know, he, he could spot the ball, but 
there was a fastball he used to have that he didn't have anymore. And uh, you know, he got by on his smarts and on just you know being able to place the ball and, and being able to have the relationship with his receiver. So, yeah, you, you know he was near the end. Um, and uh, the way he got uh, – the way the Dolphins smacked him around in the AFC championship game and uh, shut out the Colts. Um, you know, you, you didn't think they were going to collapse in 72, but you kind of had a feeling that the torch had been passed, and turns out that's what happened. That 71 Dolphins was pretty strong, too, so that's yeah. not saying much um, against the Colts. Yeah. No, what I – there is how – many, how many miles between Baltimore and Washington, D.C.? My, my son went there a couple of years ago for a trip, and they went to Fort McHenry – uh, it's not that far, is it? About 30 miles, depending on what part and what part, but probably about 35 miles down. No, is, there, is there a natural rivalry just due to the location of the cities? There, there kind of is. Uh, you know, you know the, the Ravens and Redskins only play once every four years. But, uh, yeah, they, they take it very seriously. Um, Washington kind of looks down its nose at Baltimore. And uh, Baltimore realizes that and doesn't think Washington is all that much either. So uh, they resent having Washington looking down their nose. And uh, yeah, there's, uh, there's some sports-wise, especially, uh, also cultural, but uh, sports-wise, yeah, there's, there's some bad blood. I, I, it would be a very intense rivalry if they were in the same division. It, it wouldn't quite be Ravens-Steelers, but it would be pretty good. I, I don't know why something like that has to be every four years. I mean, you know, every other year. You know, well, that's what you get when you have 32 teams in a league. Although pretty soon they'll, they'll probably expand the schedule to 32 games, so maybe you can play everybody once a year. Jeez. It's amazing they're playing 17 games now. And those poor guys are going to get going to die like that, playing like that. You know, you have the, you have the Ravens, you have the, the Washington football team. You have the Nationals, and you have the Orioles. Is there a pretty big rivalry between the Nationals and the Orioles? Uh, somewhat. Um, they both have not been good at the same time for very long. You know, there, in uh, a few years ago, they were both. Going, there was some talk about having a Beltway World Series, which would have been fantastic. Uh, neither team quite made it. So I think if both of them are competitive, uh, yes, there is a pretty good rivalry. But uh, right now, the Orioles are just so far from being competitive, uh, and I think the Nationals are probably heading toward a rebuild. Um, that you know, yeah, they you know since they do play each other every year, the potential is there. You know, it's never going to be Mets Yankees, but uh, if both of them both of them are competitive, uh, then I I think you you do see some tension and, and some pretty good rivalry. I'm, uh, I don't have a key to my DeLorean. I don't have a DeLorean here. Okay. Uh, I have bobbleheads. Okay. So you see in the back, there's some bobbleheads. Well, those are always just good. Yeah. Uh, yeah well, they'll, they'll agree with half the things I say. Uh, I have up on my sh shelf Eddie George and Kevin Dyson and Vince Young. One of these things, not like the other. Okay. Uh, if you had the chance to make uh, bobbleheads, to put four bobbleheads, I say Mount Rushmore, but four bobbleheads. We're just going to use the bobbleheads here. Uh, of your favorite players, Ravens, Redskins, Colts, who would it be? 
Well, my first two are very easy would be uh, Unitas and Jurgensen. Um, in fact, uh, you know, the, I'm, I keep watching, you know, I, you know, when, when are we going to lose Sonny? We lost uh, uh, Unitas very unexpectedly in 01, and that was, that was a tough day. Um, but, you know, the, those two were at, at the best of their profession and uh, also were very, very exciting players. You just really enjoyed watching play. Um, when you go down to three and four, um, I go with Ed Reed of, of the Ravens, uh, such a big play guy. Um, he, he made plays you just don't see defensive players make. He would have been a great offensive player with his speed and his hands. Uh, he was just dynamite. And um, you know, the fourth one, um, you know, I'd have to leave a spot there maybe for Lamar Jackson. You know, too early, too early to make that bobblehead, but I don't think I want to give that fourth spot away until uh, until we see how, how his career continues to play out. He's a he's a special player. If he can get over the hump and win a couple of championships, uh, then I think I'd probably get him for my fourth bobblehead. Lamar Jackson blends the toughness of Steve McNair the speed of and elusiveness of Randall Cunningham, the accuracy of a Fran Tarkington, plus the the smarts of uh, of even a Johnny Nattis. Lamar Jackson has he, he just he's an amazing player. You're right, and it's interesting. Well, it's amazing, really, when when he got thrust into the starting lineup in 2018. The plan was not to start him in 2018, and Joe Flacco got hurt. And uh, the way that the coaching staff completely retooled the offense on the fly in the middle of the season to you know, take advantage of Jackson's massively different skill set uh, was just a great job. And the uniqueness of that offense uh, when it's working well, which has been most of the time, because you know, Ravens fans were not used to offense. No, they not, not at all. And to be one of the, all of a sudden, the highest scoring teams in the league in, in 19 and 20, and uh, still not too far from that in 21, has been quite the change. And uh, although people still grumble about Greg Rowe and the offensive coordinator, so you just can't make people happy. But, um, you know, Jackson is a special generational player, but he's got to get that right. Uh, well, and, and I still, I was thinking you were saying Ed Reed. He doesn't look right wearing the Texan uniform. No, no. Ray Lewis did the right thing. He, he took his bow and he walked off the stage and he was done. I'm sure Ed Reed, in hindsight, probably wishes he did that too. Well, I mean, it's you look at somebody like Emmett Smith, should retire to Cowboy. Yep. Eddie George should retire to Titan. Yep. Uh, Joe Namath should retire a Jet. Oh. And, 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 and even uh, Johnny Unitas. Yeah. Oh, that was painful watching him play for San Diego. I appreciate your time, Mr. Jim. Thank you for coming on today. It has been a pleasure talking to you. I, I love talking football. I love talking history and talking about my teams. Well, give, give give me a Super Bowl guess for this year, and, and make sure one of the AFC team or the Titans. You know, we don't need to hit the Ravens. <laughs> you know, if uh, if the Titans pull themselves together, they they've got as much a shot of winning it as anybody. Uh, boy, it is such a crapshoot this year. I mean, it is. It is both conferences. A couple of weeks ago, you could have said the Cowboys, and now, 
Earth, you know, what do you got? So I don't know. Uh, maybe maybe Green Bay. Um, and uh, if I had to pick the best team in the AFC right now, um, you know, you know who just might win the thing in the AFC right now is New England. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. And for all those New England haters out there, yeah, it could happen. It could happen. And if yeah. it's not this year, then it's it could be next year. A lot of people bailed out on, on uh, Belichick last year when Brady got his ring. But I'll tell you what, Belichick is just reminding everybody this year what a great coach he is. Oh, he's fantastic. Uh, first battle Hall of Famer whenever he decides to retire, which I don't think he wants to anytime soon. Doesn't look like it. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks a lot for having me, Jeremy. Appreciate it. And thank you all for listening to the Football's Family Podcast. This podcast is sponsored by Play Classic Sports Simulation Board Games, spelled with two A's, P-L-A-A-Y. Realistic board game recreations of professional football, hockey, baseball, NASCAR, golf, and more. They cover nine sports in all, with a tenth, basketball, coming in 2022. You can relive great sessions of the past, create what-if matchups from different eras, and much more. It's fun. So if you're into sports history, you should check them out. That's play with two A's, P-L-A-A-Y, classic.com. And don't forget to use the code SHN at checkout and get 10% off your first order. Hey, are you ready for some football? Some fantasy football? How about some daily fantasy football? Silly questions, right? Of course you are. You're ready to talk some smack and win some cash every Sunday, and Thursday, and Monday, and whenever there's football games. The Sports History Network invites you to play your daily fantasy football this season at thrivefantasy.com. Thrive Fantasy offers hundreds of thousands, millions in cash every day on NBA, MLB, PGA Golf, Cricket, Esports, and of course, NFL football. And just to get the 2021 NFL season started right, Thrive Fantasy is holding its $100,000 guaranteed contest with a $20,000 first prize. Sign up with Thrive Fantasy today to get a 100% match bonus on your first deposit for up to $100 in free daily fantasy football play. Visit sportshistorynetwork.com slash thrive, that's T-H-R-I-V-E, or enter promo code SHN when depositing at the cashier. Join Thrive Fantasy today, earn cash prizes, and support great shows like this at the Sports History Network. Now that's a win-win-win situation for you to kick off your own NFL season. At the Sports History Network, we're all about sports yesteryear, and so we're so pleased to introduce you to Row One, an online memorabilia gallery and shop that brings your sports history to life anywhere. The Row One Gallery includes over 5,200 gorgeously reproduced prints of team posters, game program covers, game tickets, advertisements, and more in baseball, pro and college football, pro and college basketball, and more. And any gallery item may be printed in a variety of sizes on wood, metal, canvas, acrylic, or poster paper. And in Row One Shop, check out the thousands more of unique 
unique items with a retro and historical designs dating back to 1876, including t-shirts, long sleeve shirts, phone cases, mugs, blankets, pillows, towels, and even shower curtains. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com, R-O-W number one, for access to the full Row 1 catalog and for gallery prints and gift items, plus get a 15% discount off all prints on the Row 1 Pictorum Gallery with coupon code SHN15. Follow the link on the show notes. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Join George Bozica, the president of the PFRA, and myself, John Bozica, each month for the Professional Football Researchers Association official podcast. We'll discuss the history of the game, the many names of the game, and so many different things for you, making the history of football not only entertaining, but fun at the same time, as we join you on the Sports History Network on the official PFRA podcast. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.